Good morning, my name is Gaylene, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis chapter 6, verses 17 to 22. I am now bringing the floodwaters over the earth to destroy everything under the sky that breathes. Everything on earth is about to take its last breath. But I will set up my covenant with you. You will go into the ark together with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. From all living things, from all creatures, you will bring a pair, male and female, into the ark with you to keep them alive. From each kind of bird, from each kind of livestock, and from every kind of thing that crawls on the ground, a pair from each will go in with you to stay alive. Take some from every kind of food, and stow it as food for you and for the animals. Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Kelsey, and the New Testament reading is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 to 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Steve, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading which is found in the book of John, chapter 11, verses 32 through 35. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Jesus, we ask this morning that you would allow us to see you and to hear your voice. That we would, as a people, become formed together as your family. Father, we ask that the nearness of your presence would be available, would be apparent, would be sensed by us this morning through the Holy Spirit, even as your word is read and spoken and taught this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. I've always been a pretty vocal sports fan. And uh, I think of this particular occasion when I was watching our college's intramural sports. Now, I went to a Christian university, so we had a pretty good D1 basketball team. But but the most fun I ever had uh, cheering on sports teams were the intramural teams, which were students 
you know, playing against one another. Now, you might be wondering why I was cheering instead of playing, but I think if you know me, you know the answer to that. Uh, there are others who are always more talented than, than myself to, who would be the ones playing. And so I was watching, I think it was like an ultimate Frisbee flag football. I, I have no idea. Maybe it was flag football, some sort of intramural event, and I was standing on the sideline cheering on our floor. So uh, at the school I went to, we, don't have frater- we didn't have fraternities or sororities or anything like that, but we had things just like it. Your whole floor that you lived on was called your wing, and, you know, and it had this whole identity, and you had this name, and you cheered and all this stuff. And so our floor was playing some other rival floor, and I was a very vocal fan, cheering everybody, cheering our guys on. And at one point, my cheering sort of crossed the line into heckling the referee. Now, I know none of you have ever done that, uh, but this was mild heckling, just sort of like, you know, you missed the call or maybe a little more excited than that. And, uh, and I, at, at college, it, I, didn't, I didn't play any of the intramural stuff, I didn't do any of that, but what I did was help lead worship for chapels. And so everybody uh, recognized me because I was on the stage twice a week, playing the keyboards, helping to lead worship for our chapels. And so as I'm heckling this ref, he turns to me and he goes, hey, you play the keyboards, don't you? And in that moment, I just froze. I mean, what do you say? I mean it wasn't the normal trash-talking approach, you know? <laughs> you play the keyboards, don't you? So I said, yes. And he goes, well, just stick to playing the keyboards. And I was like, oh, okay. And that was it for the rest of my trash-talking uh, career But I sometimes think that when suffering happens in the world, when there's tragedy, when there's great, important conversations about what should we do about North Korea and what should we do about gun violence and what should we do about the... It almost seems like all of the big people in the room say to Christians, shh, you guys worship Jesus, right? Well, just go ahead and just do that. You guys are Christians, right? Well, just go ahead and do that. And it's almost like they're saying, look, what you do on Sundays, that's cute and that's nice, but it has no bearing on the real world. So please just let the grown-ups take care of this situation. And very often, Christians are all too happy to say, oh, okay, well, yes, after all, we worship Jesus, and the gospel really only has something to say about the afterlife and has nothing to say about this present life. And so we very easily say, okay, fine, I'll just take my place, I'll slink back into the corner, I'll just say, yes, sure, sure. Hey, by the way, if any of you ever want to talk about forgiveness of sins and avoiding eternal damnation, I'll be over here in my corner. But if anyone wants to talk about the great suffering and evil in the world, the president used in his speech about Vegas, he used at least three times the word evil. And it begs the question, what is evil in the world and what are we supposed to do about it? And does the church have anything to say about this subject? Or are we, like me, being told to just stick to playing nice music and singing cute songs and go back to the sidelines, please? Do we have anything to say? Sometimes I think as Christians, in order to compensate for this feeling of being marginalized, we over-exaggerate uh, our voice and we raise our, and we start yelling things into the public square, only we yell cheap answers. And because nobody is asking us to really engage in what the gospel has to say about evil and suffering and pain in the world, we, we, we speak more loudly than we should, but we offer answers that are too cheap and too thin. 
And so we say things like, well, you know, everything happens for a reason and God will just sort of, you know, use this. God wanted this so that he could have more angels in heaven or flowers in his garden or some inane trope like that. And we offer these things because we don't really know what the gospel has to say about the great big questions of evil and suffering. We're in this series on the book of Romans, and Romans has been so powerful, but the last chapters in particular have been so personal. They've been so deeply personal because they, they hit us right where we feel it. They, they speak to us about our identity. Last week we talked about our identity, that, that because we're no longer under the power of sin, God doesn't see us fundamentally, categorically as sinners, but rather as sons and daughters learning to be led by the Spirit. And, and we resonate with that. We think, that's so beautiful. And just in case we're tempted to sort of stop there and say, okay, so that's it. That's all the gospel means is it means that I can be free of guilt and feel better about myself. Just in case we're tempted to stop there, Paul actually continues his big, huge manifesto that began in chapter 5 and that ends right here in Romans 8. In fact, many commentators think the whole first part of the book of Romans comes to a crescendo at the end of chapter 8. And then he takes a little break and addresses a few things from 9 through 11 and then goes practical in 12 through 16. But just in case we're tempted to think that the good news of Jesus Christ is just personal, private good news that mostly applies to an afterlife, Paul goes cosmic on us at the end of Romans 8. Paul starts addressing the whole of creation. If you've got your Bible and you know where to find this, you can turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. Uh, those of you that this is new for you, finding your Bibles, whatever, you can, you're welcome to read along on the screen or have a friend you know, help you. Or if you've got a software Bible, that's probably the easiest way to do it. The first thing at the end of Romans 8 is this word hope, the hope. I want to structure our journey through this chapter through three words, the hope, the groan, and the love that won't let us go. And so we'll start with the hope. Verse 18, I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. Somebody say glory. Come on. The whole of creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it. But in the hope that creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. Now pause for a minute. In Romans 6 and 7, Paul used the slavery language to talk about us, to talk about how we were slaves to sin and death, but we've been transferred out of that domain and into this power, the power of God. We are now slaves to righteousness. Do you remember this? He's using language that for people who knew the Exodus story, it would have, ringed, it would have rung all sorts of bells for them. It would have said, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, slaves. We were slaves. That's part of our national story. We, we, we used to be in Egypt as slaves, and now we've been transferred. And Paul says, I've got good news. The good news is even better than that. It's not just about how you as individuals were transferred from slavery to sin. You see, creation itself was subject to slavery. Now, we live in possibly the most beautiful place in the world. 
And can you imagine that even the creation as we behold it outside, that even Pikes Peak in all its grandeur is creation subjected to slavery? Can you imagine that even the goodness that we see is still not creation fully free and fully glorious? Now maybe for us, we're spared some of the more horrendous versions of what the elements do. But if we had been in South Texas several weeks ago, we might have said, oh, we've seen it. We've seen a dark side to the elements. We've seen how it seems like it just breaks loose in an ugly way. And Paul says, yes, there's all kinds of signs that creation is enslaved, that it's yearning, it's craning its neck. One way of kind of translating that phrase there where it says creation is, is, is eagerly awaiting. It's kind of craning its neck. Think about a, marath- a marathon runner or maybe a sprinter toward the finish line just going, creation itself is going, can we please be done with this? Can we please get to the telos, the finish line? And then he goes on, verse 24, he says, we were saved in hope. And if we see what we hope for, that isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Paul reminds us that hope is orientated toward the future, that hope is a straining forward. It is a saying, there's something else, and I'm trying to bring that into my own heart now so that I can even wait and with patience and with hope. Anyone that's ever been expectant with a child knows this metaphor. And Paul uses many pregnancy images. In fact, if you just for fun read the message translation of this, of this paragraph, it's quite vivid. Because Peterson decides to paraphrase this by saying, let's go full on with the, let's go all in with the pregnancy metaphor here, you know. And you realize, wow, Paul's really saying that there are aches and groans and pains, but we know what's coming. There's something beyond the thing that we hope for. And so I want to take a few minutes this morning and just unpack this a little bit. What is the thing that we are hoping for? What is it? Because here's the thing, if our vision of hope, if our vision of what's coming is a diminished vision, then the quality of your hope in the present moment is going to be pretty weak. Does that make sense? If you think what's coming is eh, then your strength and your ability to endure and crane your neck around to the finish line, it's going to be weak. You're going to say, well, I don't know. I don't even know if what's coming is going to be that good. What 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 am I going through all this for? I don't even know if it's worth it. And so we have, Paul wants us to stop and see a couple things. But see, before we even talk about what, I want to talk about who. Who. There's something powerful about Paul talking about salvation and redemption and then talking about creation. Notice Paul doesn't use words like nature. He's not just talking about this in the abstract. The world does not exist for Paul in the abstract realm of, oh, that's just nature. He's talking about creation because whenever you talk about creation, you are reminded there is a creator. And what Paul wants us to see about God is that the creator is also the redeemer. The creator is also the redeemer. Now think about this for a minute. The whole scripture 
puts together creation and redemption in such a powerful way. In fact, you might even say that God is a redeeming creator. He makes things and finds a way to redeem it. And then not only is God a redeeming creator, you might also say he's a creative redeemer. He redeems in such a powerful way that it is new creation. And he creates in such a good way that it's worth redeeming. You catching that? He creates in such a good way that it's worth redeeming. He doesn't make junk. And he redeems in such a powerful way that it's creative. It's like a fresh creative act. He is a redeeming creator and a creative redeemer. Come on, somebody. Right? Now, when you think about this, our Old Testament reading this morning really shows this. It's Genesis 6, the story of the flood. Now, if you're like me, you probably have spent a lot of years being troubled by the flood story. God, that doesn't seem very good. Did you just have a bad day? Did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? What's the whole deal with flooding the earth? Listen, compare these early Genesis stories against the other stories surrounding Israel in their day. Compare them to other Mesopotamian myths, Sumerian myths, Akkadian stories. Compare them to all these other stories. And then all of a sudden what's important will pop. Because listen, when you compare them to other ancient stories, what is remarkable is not that there was a flood. Every ancient story accounts for some kind of catastrophic event. It's there. What's remarkable is not the flood. What's remarkable is the redemption of animals and the preservation of original creation. Are you with me? The most important part of the Noah story is how God went to great lengths to preserve original creation. Think about it. It was like like those cutesy flannel graph things if you grew up in a church where you saw the stories of the animals two by two, whatever cute songs you sang about. Look, that is one of the most powerful pictures of God's kind of salvation. Why two by two? So that original creation can be preserved. You see, if God was a bad creator, he would say, well, that was first draft. I didn't like that first draft anyway. Let's go 2.0. Let's go earth 2.0. Go, here we go. I didn't like that. You know, if God were like the designers at Apple, there would be intentional obsolescence where a year from now it wouldn't work anymore. There's a new upgrade or whatever, right? But that's not how God creates. God created and he called it good. And so despite the fall, despite our rebellion, despite the wickedness, despite the evil in the world, God redeems in such a creative way so as to preserve his original creation. Do you see how genius that is? It's right there in the sixth chapter of Genesis. There it is. God says, I'm making a plan to both deal with evil and redeem creation. We shouldn't really have been surprised when we arrived at Romans and Paul says, God found out the the way to ultimately do that. To judge evil. We said it last week. He dealt with evil in the body of Christ Jesus and yet redeem creation. He's a redeeming creator and a creative redeemer. But there's something else this reveals about God. Jason said it this morning, but all through the book of Romans, that one of the threads that we're pulling through this entire letter is the thread of God's faithfulness. And and throughout this letter, we've seen Paul argue again and again that God is never unfaithful. He's not unfaithful to Israel. He's not unfaithful to Abraham. And now we see he's not unfaithful to creation. And so you might even say the gospel reveals God's faithfulness to his people, to his promise, and to his project. God doesn't start things he can't finish. 
God doesn't quit halfway through. God doesn't switch gears. This is why I absolutely hate when people talk about the New Testament or Jesus as like plan B. It was not plan B. The writers in the scriptures say that from the beginning of time, before the foundations of the earth, the Lamb of God was slain. God knew how he was going to be faithful. He didn't start with one mode and say, wow, that was a dead end. Let's go over here. Sorry, Israel. Sorry, Abraham. No, He says, no, I'm going to do the most genius thing ever. I'm going to send my son to be the seed of Abraham to fulfill the calling of Israel to rescue all of creation. Jesus is how God is faithful to his people, his promise, and his projects. Somebody, right? Come on. And so when you see this about God, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, if those are the two things that are true about God, that he's the creator and the redeemer, and that he's faithful as both creator and redeemer, then now, all of a sudden, our vision of God shapes our vision of hope. Our vision of God shapes our vision of hope. So Christian hope is not God is going to get us out of here. But think about how much we've presented that. Come be a Christian. We know the world is terrible, but don't worry. If you're with us, you'll fly away. Like, wow, I don't, I mean, y'all are weird. Christian hope is not God's going to get us out of here. Christian hope is that God will put the world back together again in such a powerful way that death itself will be defeated, that everything sad will become untrue, and that all things will be made new. This is the power of what God will do. This is the power of resurrection life, of new creation work. In fact, I want to put a long paragraph on you. You're like, that was long enough. I'm going to put another long one on there just for you to look at. Because some of you have heard the New Testament talk about the new heavens and the new earth. But the new heaven and the new earth is not simply a restoration of creation to its original form. Sometimes the way we imagine the story is like, oh, God's going to take us back to Eden again. Is the vision at the end of the Bible a return to Eden? No. It's a garden city. It's different. Something's changed. So it's not purely a restoration of creation to its original form. It is a renewal, catch this, that is so strong it constitutes a fresh creative act which actually carries creation to its intended goal. New creation is not restoration but consummation. It does not make it what it was. It makes it something more. And so think about this when Paul says you are new creation now. God is not making you, oh, let's go back to the start. He's not taking you back to the start. He's taking you to the intended goal. He's taking you to the intended completion. Understand that God's redemptive work is not, the goal of God's redemptive work is not to erase stuff and take us back to the beginning. It's to complete stuff, right? But how often do we talk about salvation and redemption as, oh, God wiped the slate clean. I'm so glad he wiped the slate clean. Look, that's fine in so much as it's good to be forgiven. But it's not just erasing stuff. It's completing us. It's perfecting us. It's completing the world. Completing creation. That's why the vision in the book of Revelation is not the same as Eden. It's not 
back to the start. We don't have, just, just to be clear, Christians are not like Hindus or Buddhists. We don't have a cyclical view of history where it's like, oh, let's just keep going round and round and round we go. We have a sense of linearity. There is a goal, and God will get us there. God will complete it in such a surprising new way. I believe, this is why Paul says, I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the future glory. How, why is Paul saying that? I mean, Paul, on what basis? How can you? And he says, look, I know. How do you know, Paul? Because I've seen the resurrected Christ. And his resurrection body was not a pre-crucifixion body. Think about this. This is how Paul bases all of his hope. Later in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say, and Paul will say that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, we get our best vision of Christian hope by looking at the bodily resurrected Jesus. And what was the, re- the resurrected Jesus' body like? Was it a pre-crucifixion body? No. It was same but different and glorious. And so that's why, listen, if you ever puzzled over these end of the gospel stories of like Jesus appearing in a locked room all of a sudden, like, whoa, where'd you come from? You know, and he's like, don't be afraid. And they're like, well, stop scaring us, you know. Right? And then he starts to eat with them. Like, oh, this is great. And then he, they put their hands, there's wounds, there's scars. And then he's no more. Or they see him and the disciples in the road to Emmaus, they kind of recognize him, but they don't. They're like, who is that? What's going on there? It's not restoring Jesus back to a pre-suffering body It's completing the Son of God into the first fruits of resurrection, the first glorified body. That's your future. That's where you're headed. And Paul says, not just you, but all of creation. That's where Pike's Peak's headed. I mean, what's Pike's Peak glorified? I have no idea. Can you imagine? What's Iceland made glorious? Like, oh, Iceland's already glorious, right, but, but could you, what more? He's like, I have no idea how good this could be. Present suffering is nothing compared to the glory that God, that is going to be revealed to us, but this chapter is not just about the hope. It's also about the groan, the groaning. And so in verse 22, Paul says, we know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation, we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first crop of the harvest. And we talked about this last week. The Spirit is the resurrection life inside of us. We've got this, and yet we groan inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. Every ache Every pain, every receding hairline, every cancerous cell, every one of those are reminders that our body itself is groaning, waiting. I want it to know resurrection. Groaning to me is... This deep knowing in our bones that this should not be. And so when you see suffering in the world, when you experience it up close, 
we groan as Christians because we know the Creator and the Redeemer. We know this is not how the world was made and we know this is not how the world one day will be. And so because of that, we of all people should groan. We should groan. The Buddhist tells us to make our peace with it, make suffering disappear because it's just all part of the reality that is. But the Christian says this was not the world God made. And this is not the way it will be one day. And so we groan. We groan. Did you know that lament is actually one of the most powerful ways to witness to God as the creator and the redeemer? Lament is one of the most powerful ways because you're saying, I know the Creator, and He didn't make it to be like this. That wasn't the world originally. And I know the Redeemer, and that's, He's not going to end it. I already know that in the new creation, there'll be no more tears. So, doggone it, I'm mad right now. And I'm, and I'm groaning right now. And I'm lamenting right now. Lament is not a lack of faith, it's actually a demonstration of faith. Because you know, that's not what God's like, and that's not what God will do. This should not be. And so you lament, and you groan, and you say, Psychologists tell us that the first phase of grief is often what they call an inarticulate phase, the phase where words and language fail, where the best that you can do is, I think about all the times Holly and I have been with different people in those moments called to the hospital in the middle of the night, friends who had a stillborn, called to the emergency room because the unthinkable accident had happened. You think of all those moments, there are no words in those moments. But the greatest gift we can give one another is to groan with them. It's to enter their own sighing and weeping and groaning and to groan with them. Paul says, if you're suffering, know that the whole world is groaning. The rocks are groaning. Everything is crying tempted to imagine that Christianity is only for winners. Losers need not apply. Only those who've got their life together, please. I say that Christianity has a long history of weeping with those who weep. Christianity has a long story, a long legacy of coming alongside the suffering and the groaning. Those for whom you don't know if this side of the resurrection they will really experience anything other than pain. Mental health challenges, all of these different things. I'm not sure that you'll ever fully taste the thing you're groaning for. 
until the resurrection. And so I enter the groaning with you. This is why Christians throughout history are always, always, always the ones who build hospitals and hospices, who care for the sick and the dying. Christians don't flee death. We're not superstitious about death. You can dress up on Halloween if you'd like. Our kids will do costumes. It's all fun. But we're not spooked by death. And so we enter the groaning and the suffering with one another and with a world that's groaning itself. And then Romans 8.26 says something remarkable. It says, in the same way, the Spirit comes to help our weaknesses. And we don't know what we should pray, but the Spirit Himself pleads our case with unexpressed groans. Maybe the most surprising thing of it all, you think, well, if the Spirit, last chapter it said it was the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So we're like, yes, this is a victorious Spirit. He is. And He's the Spirit who groans with us who prays for us when we don't know what to pray. All of a sudden, we understand that we have a God who groans with us, a God who steps into it. The Greek idea of God was the thing that was so detached from the world. In fact, to be God was to be completely distant, detached, different from the creation But read the Old Testament, that's not the vision of God. In fact, C.S. Lewis remarked in the reflections on the Psalms, he said, the Greek myths are all about how the gods are doing what really matters and then their actions spill out into world events. So when the gods are at war, there's thunder, you know, that's the mythologies. And he says, but in the Hebrew scriptures, it's the opposite. The affairs of humanity affects the God of heaven. And so when we kill one another, God weeps. And when we endure suffering, God groans and enters into it. The gospel reading this morning is one of the most profound stories of Jesus for a number of reasons. I mean, both Martha and Mary come to Jesus and they say, Lord, if you had been here, both of them say the same thing, Lord, if you had been here. And I think this is so poignant because all of us, what we want a God for is a, we want a God for preventing stuff. If you could just be here, you would have, this would not have happened. This would not have happened. And so we want God to keep preventing suffering, but God must know that his redemption is stronger than prevention. God must know that he can bring resurrection and redemption in such a way that is so strong it breaks. In the Lazarus story is a microcosm of our suffering. Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened, this wouldn't have happened, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus doesn't give explanations. He doesn't say, well, you know, I was running late and I had to squeeze in one more thing. And doesn't say, no explanations given. But after weeping, he raises Lazarus. As if to say to us, God's power to redeem is even stronger than the power of prevention. And so as we await redemption and resurrection, we weep. And Jesus weeps with us. If you find yourself in a place where all you have are tears, Jesus will weep with you. If you find yourself at a loss for words, and like Mary, you collapse on your knees at the feet of Jesus, far from being excluded, like, oh, oh, take that to the back somewhere. 
far from being excluded, Jesus joins you. He says, all right, let's weep. Let's cry. Romans 8, 28, I like very much the way the NIV says it. It says, we know that in all things. I know most of the other translations say God works all things together. That, that's great. But I just particularly love this preposition in here. That in all things. God is not distant from. But somehow he's in. 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 All things. And he's working. And so then Paul begins to turn the tone of this chapter. And he says, so what are we going to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If even the worst thing in your life cannot create distance between you and God, if even your suffering cannot separate you from God, if even your weeping and your pain doesn't isolate you from God, if even in the weeping the Spirit groans with you, if even in the trouble God is in it with you working, then if God is for us, who can be against us? And he says, God, he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Won't he freely give us all things This is the love that won't let go. This is the love that won't let go. So we live in this in-between space where we've glimpsed the glorious hope and we carry around with us reminders of the groan in our own lives and the people we love and the world around us. The hope and the groan. The hope and the groan. But the thing that holds us together is the love of God. And so Paul ends with this glorious section in Romans 8.35, who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are being put to death all day long for your sake. We are treated like sheep for slaughter. But in all these things, we win a sweeping victory. Like, Paul, are you out of your mind? Like, how can we sing a song like Overcome? How can we say that when we know there's so much pain? Is this mind over matter? Is this Christians trying to be positive, do positive thinking? No, Paul's saying no. It's because we've seen the glorious hope. And so that even in the groan, there's a love that won't let us go. And so in all these things, we win a sweeping victory. How? Through the one who loved us. Who loved us. So much of this, the world's answers to suffering is to say, let's just end it. And so even the end of life suffering debates, well, let's just make it easy for people to end their life, all this stuff, right? The gospel says the key is not to end the suffering quicker. The key is to be loved with a love that is stronger than death. So that even when you suffer, suffering won't be the end. So that even what, no matter what you endure, you will not be let go. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or anything created. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of having to comfort a child who seems inconsolable. <laughs> They've lost something. Broken a toy. Left behind a doll. It's probably happened more times than I can remember in our home. 
And there are these moments when a child is convinced it's over, it's over. And you're not going to get through to them with logic in that moment. There's no amount of debating or, you know, rationalizing, compensating, we'll buy you something different. No, no, it doesn't. And sometimes in those moments, all you can do is to just hold them until they calm down. I think this is what Paul is saying. He's told us about the glorious hope. He wants us to know we don't grieve as those who have no hope. He's acknowledged that the groaning within us is joined by the Holy Spirit groaning alongside us, God himself entering into the world. And then he says, but in the midst of all of this, the Spirit that teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father, that's in this same chapter. The Spirit that teaches us to relate to the Creator and the Redeemer the way a little child in Aramaic would address his daddy. Say, Dad, that father is holding you. And he doesn't let go. But what about the suffering? I've still got you. But what about the pain? I've still got you. What about the future? I've still got you. The hope, the groaning, and the love that won't let you go. Would you bow your heads this morning?